right, so welcome everybody to Rationalism versus Mysticism, episode 12. Um, so today, what I want to discuss with all you guys in person and on Zoom is uh, the idea of addressing God's needs. And I know that sounds a little bit strange. What does it mean to address the needs of God? Um, and of course, we will uh, explain further as much as we can to the best of our ability. Um, and you guys can all see my screen, right? Okay, great. So you know, as uh, welcome, ID, good to see you again. Ronnie, Dr. Nasser, Victor, uh, not sure who AK is, welcome everybody. Um, and if, of course, you have any questions or comments throughout, please, I'd love to hear you. Um, so I want to just start off with a couple of interesting things that I was reading uh, regarding the Tao and Tao Te Ching. And I want to, the reason I want to present the Tao Te Ching is because, to me, it represents a complete other way of, of looking at a lot of these mystical ideas. You have Taoism, mysticism in one specific way, and then uh, Judaism treats mysticism in a different way in terms of Kabbalah. And I want to hear from you guys the way that you kind of compare it in your mind, this Taoism stuff, and then compare that to a lot of the mystical stuff that we'll talk about within Judaism in terms of Kabbalah, and just how that strikes you and which one appeals more to you, maybe. So we'll, we'll, let's see how this lands on us. So I want to read the first quote. Chow Chu asked, what is the Tao? The master Nanchuan replied, your ordinary consciousness is the Tao. How can one return into accord with it? Meaning, how can you go back into accord with the Tao? By intending to accord, you immediately deviate. If you want to get in line with the Tao, it means that you're deviating from the Tao. Yes, exactly. But without intention, how can, you know, how can one know the Tao? Right? How can anybody come to even come close to knowing the Tao if they don't have at least a set intention. The Tao, the, said the Master, belongs neither to knowing nor to not knowing. Knowing is false understanding. Not knowing is blind ignorance. If you really understand the Tao beyond doubt, it's like the empty sky. Dragon, wrong and right, or right and wrong. So to me, that's such an interesting story because what this Master is saying is that this mystical stuff has nothing to do with this um, moralistic overtones that we usually think of in terms of Judaism, you know, and so often we think of, oh, you have to be a Sadiq to get to these levels. And I'm not saying that that's not necessarily the case, because if you're at Asha and you're plundering all the time, it might be very inconvenient for you to try to meditate. You might have a lot of difficulties finding the time. Somebody's going to probably be after you. So I think to that degree, it makes sense, but there's not really a moral component within a lot of these Eastern traditions in terms of gaining enlightenment per se. That's what it seems, at least to me. I might be not fully on the ball there, but to some degree, yeah. You know, and, and uh, there's trying without trying, but yes, sorry. These Eastern traditions, I'm sure a lot of Jews will tell you yes, but but the truth is, I don't know. I don't know how much, I, to be honest, I don't think that the, that the Eastern traditions... You know, they, they say Abraham sent Manot to the East. I'm aware of all that stuff. But I think it is a little bit ethnocentric to take that as the last word, as though Judaism too much to claim. You don't have Michael, to- I, um, I agree with you in that um, a life of crime is probably not compatible with being, you know, a, a mystic or achieving enlightenment. But I don't think it's just because of the inconvenience of uh, the, the cops, you know, coming after you and busting in while you're trying to meditate. I think yeah. there's also a concept of selflessness, uh, which is essential. And so if you're obviously, you know, hurting other people to satisfy your needs, uh, you know, th that's not a selfless uh, lifestyle. So I, I just, it's just not compatible just on, you know, just on that alone is, sure. is you know, if you're trying to you know, uh, throw up material needs and then just kind of go, uh, you know, di disavow your ego, you really can't be taking advantage of other people at the same time. It's not going to work. Well, I agree. And the reason I like a lot of this stuff, to be honest, is because it's not moralistic and it's trying to tell you if you're trying to be good, then you're missing the point. Oh, Baruch Haba. Unbelievable. It's like Derek Jeter walked in the room. <laughs> you come look at my screen of me. Baruch Haba. Um, so, so the, you know, you know, don't worry about it. 
Um, so the amazing thing about this, this tradition, uh, we're talking a little bit about Taoism before we jump into the Kabbalistic stuff, just to compare Eastern versus Western. So it's very interesting because, you know, there's, there's a saying within these Eastern traditions that says that virtue, real virtue, doesn't know that it's virtue. Or you talk about humility, right? C.S. Lewis, I, I quoted that. on that I Friday. Love, Unbelievable, I remember, right? I remember the quote. What, so what is the quote? <laughs> Humility is, humility is not thinking, thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. less. Thinking of yourself less. Right? Humility <laughs> is not thinking less of yourself, right. it's thinking of yourself less. That to me really encapsulates it so beautifully because humility obviously doesn't mean putting yourself down, it just means not being so self-obsessed. And part of that is when you're trying to be enlightened, you're not really becoming enlightened. You, ah, I love it. Unbelievable. There you go. That, that's great. Like a, that's exactly. It's, it's the most beautiful right. thing. It right. resonates, right? So the, the, the beauty of this is if you want to be enlightened, stop trying. And it's the, it's the most difficult thing because like, I don't understand. Because, but, then, but then you can't say like, okay, I'm going to stop trying to the degree. Now I'm going to go be a, a derelict and go do nothing all day and be a lazy bum. There, you have to find some kind of balance where it's, what they call effortless effort, which we've mentioned before, which is a very difficult concept. But I just wanted to wet your palate a little bit with this Eastern stuff. So let's keep reading. Um, of course, any questions and comments, right, please. Yeah, so the subject matter today is going to be addressing God's needs Kabbalistically. But before we directly talk about that, I wanted to talk about some of the Eastern ways of talking about mysticism. And then we could, we're going to go back to the Jewish stuff and say, what are the, you know, the, the com comparisons and contrasts? of the two, of the two different traditions, Baruch Abba. And when we notice the differences and the similarities, we're going to be able to see, you know, maybe there's beauty in both, maybe some appeal to you more than others, but what is the wisdom that each are trying to get across? So, so far we're talking about how with the Taoist stuff, you can't really try because if you're the one trying, that's already egotistical. And it's like, you get, you, you, like, like uh, one of my teachers likes to say, you could spit, stand on your head and spit with nickels, whatever that means. It's what Ronnie always says, you know, we don't even understand how to get around this. It's just kind of, you have to let go and you have to just train yourself to let go of the ego obsessed need to become enlightened, whatever that means. And I'm, I'm difficulty. Yes, I D. Mikey. Hi. So could you just give me, a snapshot of Tao's, uh, Tao's MO. Yes. It's like my guy for 30 years, I told you, was Dr. Wayne Dyer. And at the end of his, of his life, before he passed away, he was very big on the Tao. But what, what's really, what's his, what's the Tao? Yeah, so the, yeah, the, you could call it Tao, you could call it Tao. I think the Cantonese wow. would call it Tao. It's all the same story. Right. So what, um, what was his? What was? What did? What did you? What did you have from him? What? what right. Uh, so I, I actually listened a few years ago to the Dao De Ching, and I listened again recently to it. It's claimed to be written by Lao Tzu uh, a couple thousand years ago. You know, I'm not sure exactly the dates. Maybe even BCE a little bit. But it's it's something that's it's funny because some of the quotes we're going to read, the Tao that can be told of is not the absolute Tao. That's this one here. It's something that obviously cannot be ever put into words, but I love the name of Alan Watts's book, which is, which is Tao, the Watercourse Way. And we're going to read some quotes here that compare Taoism to, you know, kind of going with the current, going with the grain. It's kind of getting into the groove of life and learning to surf the waves of life rather than constantly swimming against the current. So they always talk about the metaphor of somebody that built a sailboat rather than somebody that's struggling mightily on a rowboat, if you're rowing, rowing, rowing against the current, you're not really doing it so intelligently. But if you're harnessing the power of the wind and you have the, you, the power of the waves at your back, anything you're coming to do is almost effortless because you're in tune with the way that the flow of everything is. A big part of it is the yin-yang polarity, which is the Everything is opposite. And also there's a wavical nature to everything. Everything that we know of, all physical phenomena are basically waves, which is a crest and a trough. You see, you talk about sound waves, electromagnetic radiation in the form of light. Um, you talk about compression. Everything is a wave, you know, and also that we know the wave particle duality. Anything that you're going to be involved in in this physical realm is going to be, I see it, I don't see it. It's there, it's not there. Um, so part of this is, Myself with my environment. Fundamentally, anything you're doing 
don't take yourself as an isolated individual in that context, but rather take yourself in that context fundamentally. So when I'm going about my day and I'm trying to meditate, I shouldn't have my awareness stuck in my mind or in my head over here. My awareness should be, I am the whole room right now. I am room and self at the same, you know, that, that is the real self. So it's hard to put into words completely, but I can almost speak around the topic. And I'm, I'm hoping that some of these quotes here will give you a better idea, but we could definitely discuss more about um, what Taoism is about. I'm not, and I'm still reading as much as I can. I'm in the middle of a book on it. I'm trying to get, familiarize myself more and more. I've listened to some lectures from Alan Watts, um, but I'm definitely not such an expert. But to me, it's such a beautiful way of thinking because it's, it's so much less of a way of forcing things. So, so kids were, say, were taught you have to put an effort and you have to try to serve Hashem and control your Yetzir Hara and all this stuff. And this is saying, no, just let go and stop forcing things. No, but at the same time, don't just let, let it be. Put yourself in a situation where the forces yes. are going to make you do something. Exactly. They're, they're going to lead you to the good. You. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Forces are a very big thing. Absolutely. And with the wind, the, the wind, water, the water yeah. beautiful. Absolutely. Agreed a hundred percent. I hope that answers it a little bit. I do. every day. Yeah. It just naturally put you in the right direction. Habits are huge. I think that's exactly the currents of your life in a way. That's exactly right. Um, so yeah, I love that question idea. You know, if you have more questions, please feel free. Um, so let's listen to this one. This is from the Tao Te Ching. And also this one was as well, the Tao that can be told of is not the absolute Tao. Here's another one. The great Tao flows everywhere to the left and to the right. All things depend upon it to exist and it does not abandon them. To its accomplishments, it lays no claim. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. So this is a very mystical view of God, if you will. And the reason I'm using that word is because I want to redefine the way that you need to use that word. Or, you know, you maybe felt the need to see God as a monarch. And of course, the Torah has a million different images of God, you know, throughout the Torah. But obviously, there's nothing that could ever be put into words about God fully. So the, the beauty here, first of all, I remember listening to a great meditation from Ram Das, And he says, you know, there's a meditation, I am loving awareness. And, you know, just being the awareness. I know, Saul, you listened to it. Being the awareness. And awareness, he says, has a certain quality of compassion. What does that mean? The quality of compassion that awareness has is that it's aware of all things and it has a certain understanding of how all things are at all times. And in that way, it could be called compassionate. Not in the way that you might think a mom is compassionate to a kid per se, because it might be just aware of pain. But still, that's a way almost of compassion, because it's an understanding. It's an awareness of the pain at that time. And, you know, I love uh, this guy, Thich Nhat Hanh, who just died. He was 95, a Vietnamese monk, unbelievable guy. He gives beautiful guided meditations that I listen to sometimes. And one of his things is that when you're stressed out and when you're feeling not well, what you can do is bring a mindfulness to that. And the mindfulness is like the mommy consoling the baby because every one of us has a little kid inside that's sometimes in pain. Every one of us has a kid inside that's sometimes very overwhelmed. And the equivalent of the mother giving a hug to the child inside of you is your ability to give yourself full mindfulness of that pain, of that discomfort in any moment. So to me, a lot of that is, is a beautiful, you know, kind of afterthought regarding this stuff. But the Tao itself is kind of like that. It's, it's something, you know, we, we always talk about when Hashem shows his greatest gedulah or his greatest gevurah, you also see his greatest humility. In the place where you see God's greatest greatness, you also see God's greatest humility. To me, this is what it's all about, because the Tao is another way of saying that in the sense that, it is the source of everything, and it is constantly in all moments everywhere providing for the existence of all things, and yet it's not asking for admiration. It's not asking for you to say, oh, my God, look how amazing this is, because it's just, it just is. 
It just is doing it. That's kind of the way. And that, there's a humility in that. And yet there's all these great things that we see and there's un, all these unbelievable phenomena. Can you give us an example of Hashem's uh, greatness and humility at the same time? Sure. I think they say when you talk about Malchut Echa, Malchut Kol Alamim, but you also see Hanun Verahum, Erech and all these, these unbelievable qualities. Or you talk about, uh, I think in the Amidah, when we say, Atagibor Leolam Hashem. And then we say all these different things. So anytime in the Torah, it's it's claimed, or anytime in the Tanakh, I, I well, exactly it's a hamim, hundred percent, yeah, every little person, exactly, yeah. They should prior to Elohim. Beautiful. All this stuff, yeah. I think that's in a way. And I think even just the mentions of God's greatness are always juxtaposed to mentions of God's, you know, humility and caring for Hanun I will listen to the, the cry of the person that's sleeping without a baggage. Bameishkav, what is he doing sleeping? That's like a, you know, such an ultimate humility thing. And caring for the little guy. And he's saying, I'm also capable of, of wiping you out if you don't obey that and not give up. That's the way. There's a lot of noise on oh, our. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not sure. I, I think I don't know what that is. Uh, I think it's good now. Sorry, um, sorry. I, I think ID. I had to mute you for a second, but obviously, ID. If you need to unmute, please feel free. I don't know. I think it was. I think it was. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Don't worry. Um, but here, let's see. Uh, I can't hear you, ID. If you want to unmute, you can. Let's see. You got me. You click the. Uh, the microphone or click the space button and you can unmute. Oh, it wasn't me. Oh, it wasn't you. Sorry about that. I, uh, oh. I'm sorry. Unless you, unless you don't want me to ask anything. Anymore. Oh, no, I think, <laughs> I think it is a little bit your, there's some kind of background noise, but don't, I really want to hear from you. I, you know, you're my, my star pupil, my favorite guy. No offense to anybody else. It's me and I. Oh, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's the machine. No, maybe it's the towel. I, it is the towel, and I think it's the machine as well. <laughs> you gotta go with the flow. Exactly, gotta go with the flow. All right. So if if it happens again, I'll just I'll just mute you again, and you could unmute. No problem. My pleasure. <laughs> Love you. Um, all right. So now we're gonna give a couple more quotes before we delve into the Kabbalistic stuff. Um, here, this one is from Huainan Tzu. I just love their names. The towel of heaven operates mysteriously and secretly. It has no fixed shape. It follows no definite rules. It is so great that you can never come to the end of it. It is so deep that you can never fathom it, right? So there's a certain element here of there. It's so beyond our comprehension and our ability to understand that it, that it makes us realize how small we are, but it also makes us realize you shouldn't even try to understand. You shouldn't even attempt to you know, wrap your mind around it because that's not the, the pathway towards it. Um, and now here's just a few quotes, all from the Tao Te Ching, comparing the Tao to water, and then we'll go to the Kabbalistic stuff. But the reason I love, like I told you earlier, ID, is this stuff about, uh, about water is because it, it really captures this flowing nature of things. And, you know, Alan Watts likes to say, there's two kinds of people out there. There's the prickly people, and there's the, the more gooey people, or the wiggly people, the prickles and the wiggles. So you talk about people who think, you know, everything is particles. They're very prickly people. Everything's precise and pointy. And then you have the wiggly people. Oh, no, everything is, uh, is a wave. Electrons are waves, really. They're not really particles. And, you know, you have some very religious people who are like squares in the sense that they're like, you know, very rigid in their thinking. They won't do any fun things. Not, I'm not saying you shouldn't be a good person and be religious, but sometimes it's very rigid. And then you have some people who are like, yo, man, let's relax and smoke some weed. And, you know, that's like more of the wiggly people. But I think in reality, there's a certain thing to be said. And obviously everything is paradoxical, but there's a certain wiggly nature to the, the way that things really are that we as Westerners very often are trying to escape from and ignore. Look how geometric everything has become in the streets and the this and the that. And there's a beauty in the wiggliness of things and the curvaceousness of things, you know, and. The, the beauty of Taoism is that the watery, flowy nature and wavy nature of things is trying to give you a, an insight into that way of being. 
stop clinging to the particle nature of things and the prickly nature of things and the left brain logic that we're so often guided by, which just leads to thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking. And instead, just get into the groove of, of everything. I, you know, I was telling Ronnie, I think the other day, I love the song, you know, Human by the Killers. Are we human or are we dancer? Are we human or are we dancer? It's a beautiful song. And I listened to it. So I was listening, riding my bike the other day, you know, and I'm listening to it. And I, I also studied string theory to very little degree, you know, a few months ago. Um, but I love it because string theory tells us that really the subatomic particles that we know of up quark and down quark and all these different quarks, which we think of as like these particles, really, what are they really made of? Strings, strings that are like rubber bands. They're vibrating each of them in different, you know, uh, uh, angles and different positions and different frequencies. And based on the dimensions and the, and the, the way that each string is vibrating, it either creates an up quark or a down quark. And then that builds everything that we know of. So what that's saying is everything basically is music. Everything we know of is vibrating strings at different frequencies, which if you know about music, a string vibrating at a certain frequency creates a certain pitch or a note. I don't really know music that well, but I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. <laughs> but bottom line, yeah, the frequency I think is related to the length of the string and that creates pitch. You know, so it's amazing to me because at its deepest reality, the, the world around us is music. It is a grand symphony to God. And it is a dance. So get out of this mindset of having to get somewhere all the time and having to think about things all the time and instead get into the groove and the rhythm of everything. And then you'll be closer to the divine perspective because you evolved with two sides of your brain. And now, as he says in the master and his emissary, Ian McGilchrist, the left brain has almost like a coup against the right brain and has taken over the way that we operate as human beings. And we're not able to really get in touch with the creative and the artistic and the wavy nature of everything. So let's read some of these quotes about water. The highest good is like water. For the good of water is that it nourishes everything without striving. It occupies the place which all men think bad, for example, the which is the lowest, the lowest level, right? And it's amazing to me. What did I immediately think of when I read this? They say, En ma'im ela Torah. Right. And, you know, when, when we read with, with Rani, often we see, oh, the Be'er and the Ma'im is like Nivu'ah and whatever is going on. But the beauty of this is that what do they say about uh, the Torah or about because it's like Ma'im? The Ma'im always goes to the lowest place. It always sinks to the lowest place. And so, too, with Torah, it only goes to the person with the most humility, with the person that has the, the greatest ability to be in the lowest place, not putting themselves down in that sense, but in the sense of humility, um, you know, and if, uh, you know, so to me, that really struck a chord because I, I think that's exactly the way the Tao is supposed to be, you know, accessed is by fully letting go of your perceived self, which we have mentioned so many classes, this bundle of a self that you've created is just a, an arbitrary thing. The sense of an eye that you have, a sense of a body and a self as, a, as separate from everything in any moment is completely arbitrary. Um, so, so just get into, realize that the, the waves and the electromagnetic radiation that's flowing into you and the, the, the thermal energy and the kinetic energy is flowing into you and out of you at all times. We evolved to see ourselves as this boundary here, but really we're continuous with the flow of all the particles all around us at all times. Um, and that's the beauty of the water image. Mike, could you, yes, I think. Could you expound on, on the water relate, you know, like in Judaism, the, what Maya is like? Is yes. It, is it heebie jeebie Maya? I, so I don't think it's heebie jeebie per se. I think really what it's trying to say is that the Torah is compared to water because water gives life for sure. You know, Mayim uh, Hayim and the Torah gives us spiritual life in a way. Uh, but in addition to that, that metaphor of the humility stuff where the water is always sinking to the lowest place and the Torah is only really accessible to people who are willing to be low in their ego. Make sense? Yeah. Great. I'm going to mute you again. I'm sorry about that. But, but feel free to unmute at any time. Yeah.
Sipora all at the, at the wells, right? Ah, uh, yes, all the all the imahot met uh, the avot. A very a lot of them at the, at the well. Exactly, beautiful. Um, listen to this one. It is thus that Tao in the world is like a river going down the valley to the ocean, right? So they're comparing it like to like a river, right? It doesn't have any resistance. It's not going up uphill. It's going downstream, meeting into the into the ocean. And, you know, like uh, I love one of these quotes from uh, the bucket list. You ever see the bucket list with Jack Nicholson and and Morgan Freeman? Unbelievable. And I think right when Morgan Freeman's dying in that movie, spoiler alert, um, you know, he, he says uh, that his pastor always says that our lives are like rivers, all flowing and converging into the same ocean. Or like, you know, Ram Das, I think, says uh, that, you know, we're, we're all just walking each other home. From infinity to infinity, we're all just walking each other home. I think that's such a beautiful, heartfelt image because that's what the Tao is. It's, it's just kind of flowing without any effort, without any resistance. And we can get into the flow of that if we really wanted to. Um, the most gentle thing in the world overrides the most hard, right? And that's amazing because that's literally what they say about the Torah. You know, the thing about Abi Akiba, Abi Akiba, he was 40 years old and he saw the drip, drip, drip of the water hitting the rock. And he saw a hole in the rock, right? And he says, wow, amazing. If something so soft like the water could make a hole in something so hard like the rock just over many years, the Torah, which is sharp and hard, can make a hole in my brain, which is soft. And, he, and then he became religious as, uh, and he became who he was as it would be Akiba. But listen to this. The most gentle thing in the world overrides the most hard. What that means is there's a kind of feminine element to this stuff. There's like a, a passivity and a, and a finesse to the Tao that is not like a, you know, a masculine, we shall do this ego. It's more of just a, a relaxed, um, soft, softness. Yeah, it is sexist. You'll let, you'll let it pass this one time. The traditional way of seeing femininity, you know what I mean? Like in the, in the terms of the, the Jordan Peterson, we could, we could have a discussion. You can yell at me later. Write me an angry email, like I usually say. How do coves and oceans become kings of a hundred rivers? Because they are good at keeping low. That is how they are kings of the hundred rivers, right? So because the, the, the ocean or the cove is at the lowest place, all the rivers are flowing down towards it. And the same thing with your brain. You could imagine yourself, if you lower yourself fully, then all the wisdom and all the vibes of the universe will flow down into you. Such a beautiful way of meditating, right? Imagine, imagine yourself in the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, and just sitting there and having all the things kind of just, you know, flowing towards you. It's so beautiful. Um, nothing in the world is weaker than water, but it has no better in overcoming the hard, right? So water is very weak, according to this, but also it is able to overcome the hard in the sense that it could just keep on flowing and flowing and washing everything away. So I really like that. All right, without any further ado, we'll move into the Kabbalistic stuff. Unless, of course, anybody has any questions or comments, please feel free. Um, okay, great. So now we're going to talk about addressing God's needs. And I'll say needs in quotes because I don't want to offend any Maimonideans here. But yeah, be careful. I know, I got to be careful. with. But trust me, we've said a lot in these classes that I should be careful about. But I've, I've tried my best. Um, but what does this mean to address God's needs? So it's a need from us. Say it again. Why does he need anything from us? Exactly. How could he? How could a perfect being ever possibly need something from us? So, like the Mikubalim, still knowing this, I'm sure they knew that. They still wanted to talk about it this way, for you because of course it's ineffable. Of course, the reality can never be put into words. He needs us to do what he wants. Yes, Michael, a perfect being wouldn't have created us in the first place because a perfect being would have no needs or interest in, in having anything else from itself. I actually said this on Shabbat, believe it or not. That's, I said, like, how could it be, this is Shabbat day, that how could it be that God is perfect, like the, like the Greeks are saying, and yet he creates a world that we see as imperfect and us, you know, and, and all that. So I, what I said, and because it says, Ki am Israel. God wants to destroy the nation because they're stiff-necked and stubborn. And then he says, I want to save them because they're stiff-necked and stubborn. Moshe. Moshe, right? Oh, exactly. Sorry. Then right. Moshe says that. Right. Same thing, Parashat Noach, by the way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Noach, God wanted to destroy the world because, And then at the end, he wants to 
save the world. The same reason for destroying and for saving, what it doesn't make any sense. So the point is that there's an X factor in the middle, like Rabbi Shammah writes about in the Recalling Covenant. God has a partner that he could work with in the world. And God, in a sense, needs us to be that partner. Need, of course, is not the best word. It's the only word we can really use. But because we could be the agent on the ground, the guy on the field, you know, in the field, the FBI agent, we could be that guy or that girl. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got to be careful. But uh, the point is, there's a beauty in that because now it allows for growth. Because if everything was perfect, it would be completely unchanging. And what's purpose of living if you're not exactly. here? Exactly. need you to do this. Exactly. And that's Jordan Peterson's yeah. whole mashal. He says, that's- if my son was... 10 feet tall and made of steel, he wouldn't be so adorable. I would love that because he wouldn't be vulnerable. Then I wouldn't love him so much. You would, so we love people because of their vulnerability. So Hashem, in a sense, loves us even more because of our flaws. And that's maybe and, and perfect doesn't mean unchanging and perfect from the get-go. It means providing for the potentialities to become even more and more perfect and whatever that means. And already it is perfect the whole time and it's just ineffable. That's the, that's the point. Um, so let's talk a little bit about tikkun olam. We all know this term, tikkun olam, fixing the world. Uh, today it's taken on a very political flavor, you know, having, doing uh, social justice. Um, it's actually first found in Masechet Gitin in the Gemara. Um, and it has really nothing to do with the political flavor that we see today. It has more of a halachic basis to it. We read in Alein Lashabayah, what do we say? Letakin olam b'malchut shaddai, right? To fix the world in a way of... The kingdom of God, right? Uprooting evil and idolatry that's associated with the evil in the world. Um, Tikkun uh, became even more pronounced during the times of Lurianic Kabbalah of the Arizal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the the idea of Tikkun really became much more popular uh, in the past few hundred years. And then, uh, you know, they they took it to mean that if you observe the mitzvot, you're going to be able to affect a great change in the world. Through the sefirot, and whatever that means, we discussed it in past classes, but in a way, you as a human being, because you like, of all that stuff we just said, because you're a partner with God in creation and in, in the drama of reality, you're able to have an effect on the inner life of God, whatever that means, by doing things in this world. And they talk about tikkun nefesh, tikkun avonot, you know, perfecting your soul and perfecting uh, your actions without doing any sins, uh, cultivating moral virtues and repenting. So already, what are we? What are you noticing? The differences between the Taoist stuff and all the Kabbalistic stuff. Well, more active. Much more active. There's the idea of a drama. Human beings are seen as main players on this grand stage. So what I want to say is, I don't believe that any one way is right. I would never say Taoism is wrong and Judaism is right. And I would never, never say Judaism is right and Taoism is wrong. I think both are beautiful. It's like Beethoven and Mozart. You know, they both have ways of expressing music. They both have ways of expressing something about the nature of mystical reality. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it. But you know what I would say? It's try to be in a balance. Don't try to go too far in one way or another. Because then you might become too radicalized. And if you become too much into the Kabbalah stuff and you, you become so obsessed with your place, you become too egotistical. And if you become too Taoist, it's possible that you'll become afraid and neurotic about doing anything because you start doubting everything. And already that's a form of ego because self-effacing ego is also ego because who's, who's, who's doubting itself? You know, that's the ego. So, the point here is whatever unlocks you, whatever is bringing you to closer to Hashem, to the Tao, to whatever you want to call it, towards this way of living with the moment, with existence, with the ground of being, with God, whatever the term is you want to use. So to me, they're both beautiful and they're both different dramas about the way that we want to express uh, reality. Uh, okay, so that's the first section. Now the next thing. What are some basic assumptions within the Kabbalistic idea of Tikkun Olam? Yeah, the Kabbalists sure. were more interested in tikkun olam or tikkun themselves. Uh, great question. I think they're both intertwined. That w- the way of fixing the world, part of it fundamentally, is by fixing yourself because you play a very unique role and mission in this world. 
that unless you fulfill your mission, the, the mission of the whole world is not fulfilled. You know, but the Taoists might say the Tao can never be deviated from anyway. So even when you thought you were doing a Yerida, you was already just leading you towards the next Aliyah. And like that's like they say, Yerida, Aliyah. everything is God's will no matter what. How could anything not be God's will? You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, what you might you might feel like you're getting further away and then closer and then further away and closer. But that's part of the we're going to see what they call it, Atsovashov, the ebb and the flow of this mystical existence. Okay. So what are some basic assumptions of Kabbalistic Tukun Olam? Um, they have this idea of primordial catastrophe. When Hashem created the world using the Sifirot, the vessels shattered. Some kind of primordial vessels, vessels of the Sifirot shattered, and they created all of the reality that we know. And part of these vessels became all of reality, and they became kilipot and sparks inside of them. You say it again? And it's us. Yes, shells, exactly. The shells with the nitzotzot are the sparks inside. So the kilipot with the nitzotzot, the shells with the sparks, provide for the existence of everything that we know. The water bottle, the, the computer, the table, everything, the people around us. And there's an imbalance in the world. It's kind of like Rabbi Sachs, the healer fractured world. That's where he gets it from. That there was this primordial catastrophe, and now it's our job to go and try to fix it. Are all the sparks in the kilipot or... I think that's what I, the only way a kilipot can exist is with a spark inside. Right, but can a spark exist without a kilipot? I think only if it's returning to its source, as far as I know. But maybe there's some kind of orhaganus that you can see. I, I don't. I, I, I we got to ask a capitalist. You know, <laughs> we definitely got to ask somebody. We bring in next week. We'll get somebody. Um, we'll not in this building. <laughs> exactly. Not going to be here. Um, uh, it's so ironic that this is occurring in this building, isn't it? <laughs> it's not lost on me the irony of it. Um, so, so what's the difference here? I wrote, there's a sharp distinction here from the Eastern traditions that we were just discussing because they don't see any primordial catastrophe at all. They don't talk about it that way. They see it more as a game that's unfolding. Like the Hindus will say it's a game of hide and seek. The Taoists will say it's just flowing. The Buddhists will say what they say. But then again, the, the Kabbalim will say also, yeah, this drama that's happening, it already is perfect right now. I think they would say that too. So you can't get lost in any one side of it. You have to keep in mind the paradoxical nature. We said last a couple of weeks ago, a mystic without a paradox is like a lover without his beloved. So we love paradoxes as mystics, you know, and we, we want to see things from both sides, even dialectical behavioral therapy developed for people with borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. The healing for them is the ability to see things from both sides the ability to balance the yin and the yang of every scenario. And that allows them to function better in the world. So I think that's true for any of us. Um, and that's why I just love that, that mysticism had an effect on a, a practical way of therapy that helps so many people, we hope. Um, and because the sefirot are in a state of disorder, they say things are not functioning properly. Everything is in a state of alienation from its essence. The nitsotsot are stuck in their kilipot. They're hiding and it's our job now to, as human beings, bring the world eventually towards that place where all the needs are restored back to their divine source, like the drops returning to the ocean. Um, and of course, you see all the issues happening in our world. Somehow that's related to the distance of the needs from their divine source. Um, and, you know, in a way, things are both perfect and imperfect at the same time. And the perfection is the imperfection. It's a, you, know, you have to speak from, in paradox and from both sides of your mouth. You have to equivocate in a way as a mystic. Um, so there's things that are both perfect and imperfect right now. So I always talk about when you're with somebody that's suffering, there's a way of, of being present with them on two levels. So on the one level, you're in complete and total equanimity. And at the same, very same time, another part of you, your heart is breaking and you're absolutely broken over their loss or over what they're going through, you know, and there's a way of, and it's more healing to them for you to not get lost in their pain, but to be fully feeling with them as you can empathetically, but also at the same time dwelling in that equanimity. And by the way, there's a part of you dwelling in equanimity at all times, even though you don't know it. And that's the irony of all this. Um, like we said last week, there's a part of you that's already in ecstasy that you're not even aware of. And until you, come to that mystical experience. And then you realize, oh my God, I was in ecstasy this whole time. I can't believe it. 
It was it's an unbelievable way of thinking or experiencing, really. Um, human deeds in this world, are, like we said, have the ability to affect us. If you don't, the disposition of God, you know, and take that as you will. Um, we need to help God become what he is meant to become. And I want to show you some sources that are more traditional within the Gemara, within the Midrash, that show this as well. It's a crazy sentiment. I'm going to show you. Right. We're going to see a lot of things like that. Uh, I want to show you that it's not as, as far away from the traditional stuff as you might think. And I don't know what the Maimonideans will do with, will do with this stuff. I think Hanambam, you know, was, is fantastic and I love him to death. But I think you need. He's very removed. He's very, yeah, there's, there's so many different ways of looking at the world that to only go with one flavor. If you only ate strawberry ice cream the rest of your life. You're not going to really enjoy all that life has to offer. You know? Any questions? Mike, yes. Mike, Mike what, what yes. do you think the Rambam was so, I mean, for, for a tower of power that he was, do you have any clue as to why he like was anti-HBGB? Yes. I, I mean, in my humble opinion, this is, this is why, again, I'm not an expert in this at all, but you could say a few different things. I think it, I I think who Hanambam was at his time was perfect. I I I am so happy he was exactly the way that he was. I I am not asking him to ever be different. And the reason part of the reason I say that is because if he wasn't that, we would be steeped in so much superstition and so much heebie-jeebie that would be leading to a lot of bad stuff. And you see a lot of that stuff like that becomes corruption in our day and age, where somebody's going to bless something and sell it for a lot of money, or they'll say a name under the Torah and charge you a whole boatload of cash. And that's not really great. And Hanabam was very against that and the Abu Dazara stuff. But I think main, a lot of it is he was very influenced by Greek uh, philosophy. Yeah. Say it again? Aristotelian philosophy, exactly, specifically. And uh, he, he, he was a product of his place and time where a lot of the, um, you know, the, the, the Muslim philosophy and the Sufi, no, the Sufi was more the, the yeah, mystical, yeah, exactly, yeah. the opposite. But but yes, the Muslim stuff very much, I think, influenced the way that he, the, the person that he was. And, you know, that's the, that's the thing. When you, when you get to a certain point in your life, you stop asking every single person that you meet to be the, the, this icon of perfection. You know, it's like, even especially in a romantic relationship, you know, you're not going to ask your spouse to be perfect. You're going to say, oh, you know, I want you to be, your fullest self and let's work on on this relationship together but if you're expecting your spouse to meet every single one of your emotional needs i did research in college called emotionships that we have emotional relationships in our lives you got one friend you have you talk to because um you know you, you want to amplify your anger you just want to get that anger and then another friend you have something funny to laugh about somebody you want to you you would talk about something sad somebody else you want to you know talk about something that made you happy People who have the highest wellness, according to the research, are people that have the widest and deepest emotional portfolio, emotionships, right? The, if you have the most variety. And the reason we have a high divorce rate now, 50% of marriage is ending in divorce, because we're expecting our spouses to fulfill 100% the whole gamut of our emotional relationships. And you're putting an impossible pressure on one relationship that never used to exist in history. You can look at the history of what marriage used to mean. It was political, it was economic. Now it became this crazy thing that nobody could ever live up to, and everyone's getting divorced. So I think the same thing with Rabbanim, you know, <laughs> have deal uh, is that. I mean, this is a classic thing. I mean, of course. Rabbi uh, Ishmael, Rabbi Kiva. Aywa, exactly. And Bam and the uh, and the, the Kubalim. Exactly. hundred percent. And the truth, maybe not be may not answer may not be one extreme. Maybe somewhere in the middle. Exactly. And balance, balance, balance. Exactly. And and learning to love everybody for who they are. Instead of trying to force other people to, to, to fit into the mold that you think the standard person should be, what a boring world that would be. There's a reason God didn't make everything one sea of, of oneness. You know, I mean, it is in a way, but it manifests to us as so diverse and so beautiful. The Renaissance man. Exactly. You know, a, a jack of all trades in a way. Beautiful, 100%. And I think that's the, the, the beauty in taking this spiritual perspective is no longer do you judge anymore. See what I'm saying? You're not getting part of it is letting go of judgment of the world, of reality, of anything. And when you could take this perspective of I love everything for what it is as it is, this as they call it, wabi sabi world, you know, right? ID, 
the wabi-sabi nature of things. You want to tell everybody what that is? What is that? <laughs> wabi-sabi is to take things that you think are imperfect and make them perfect. Exactly. So, so they use, right, what's the example? Like the, the tea kettle, the teacup? Right, so the, the, the teacup is cracked and then you put it together and it's beautiful. Exactly. And, it's, and you see the crack in it like the Liberty Bell, right? There's a, there's a perfection in that imperfection. It's artistic. It's artsy now. Right, that's, you nailed it. That's it. Perfection and imperfection. Because exactly. they're trying to say that the world is so beautiful that no matter what you see, you have to look at it through a different lens. Exactly. And they made that into art. So I always try to say, God, I love you and I love my wabi-sabi life. Because my wife, my, my life, like anyone else's, is wabi-sabi. My wife told is definitely going to be wabi-sabi one day. But that's the point. That. Exactly. You can never say happy wife, happy life. You know? <laughs> but, but bottom line, they made this into art for a reason, because it expresses a deep beauty and truth about the world. That the world is wabi-sabi and we love it for that reason. And there's a, there's a huge enlightenment in that if you could get to that level. And that's really what meditation is. It's about sitting with, not judging, and accepting and loving what is right now. And it's not that hard if you stop buying into a future and a past, because it just is this. Yes, I do. Right. But Mike, it's also like when the thing I told you, you know, at the time, the Iggy Kai, the whole, yes. like the Tao and all these other people you bring into the picture, obviously getting more into the Judaism where it's our court. But at the end of the day, the Japanese... It, it, it's almost, it's scary that it's almost in line with what we do. It's like the Iggy Kai, being in the moment. You know, yes. the, you know, and then I, like I told you about the Wabasabi. And then the next step is the Iggy, the Ichi go Ichi. And then from then you go to Chawa and, and you know, and then you go to the Gambate. And, and you, Unbelievable. if you follow all that, like, what, and then you relate it to Judaism, like, it's scary to see. Without getting, you know, not falling yes. into another god or whatever you want to call it, that the model is really, it's like a universal model with all these things. Yes. yes. So, so I want to tell him, ID gifted me a book called Ikigai a couple of years ago. And I read, I read it. And I have to read Wabi Sabi still. But it's so, and Rabbi Henry told me, oh, that sounds like the thing I put on my sushi. <laughs> but there's, there's a beauty. You say it again, ID? No, no. Yeah. So, so. The beauty of all this is, is that you could connect a lot of these Eastern things with a lot of the Western stuff and a lot of the Jewish stuff. Right. That's what I'm going to show you guys through this stuff. And that the Ikigai is, is exactly this idea of every person having their own mission and their own passion at their center, at their core, that's supposed to guide their lives. And when you do your 70, 80 years of life, you restored X amount of Nitzotzot to their source. That's a very beautiful way of seeing your life, you know, and then when you die, you see your life as one note in that grand symphony. That's a Jewish idea. That's an Eastern idea. That's a Western. Idea. It's so beautiful. And I think it's, it's undergirding all this stuff. Um, so really, thank you for that. I agree with that. Mike, what's going on? Yes, Sammy. Baruch Abba. Yes. <laughs> you were saying the have deal something and you were talking about the Rambam. What's the Rambam like? that you were so, so Harambam is known for uh, you know and, and people will tell you this is not necessarily strictly true because he talks about you know love of God on a certain level but he's known very traditionally as very rationalistic he's very rationalist and he he's um, you know very influenced by Aristotle who was had a certain rationality towards his philosophy very you know in, in contradistinction to the mystical stuff that we're discussing that's why I made that distinction. But there will, there are articles you can read that claim that Hanambam had mystical elements to him. I don't, you know, you know, and it's, his son, I think, probably, you know, I'm not as familiar, but you, I would love to know. Yeah, really? Wow! No way! Oh my God! That's I gotta read this stuff. That's crazy. Rabbi, a lot of times, Rabbi, a lot of times, Ben Hanambam, yeah. Unbelievable. I got to read that. Incredible. Okay. Really send it to me. That's, that's amazing. So that's, that's really cool. And you know, it, it's probably no wonder that the son of Hanambam, maybe the pendulum swung a little bit. You know, if my father was the Hanambam, I might've done the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think it was in the world around him. And Hanambam does have, Hanambam says we should love Hashem like a man loves a woman. Mm, yes, exactly. Yes. You know, 
Exactly. A hundred. We quoted that a few classes ago, and that's the the point is that you you should never label that's really that's people. It's different. It's a different notion. Yeah. Another woman is different than. But would Aristotle say that? Would Aristotle talk about love of of God of this unmoved mover? Can you really love that? You know, and it's like. It's more of a of a mystical element tinge to it than yeah yeah and they had to to play instruments sometimes like Elisha the again the minute he needed the men again to have an ecstatic experience you know mm-hmm. right beautiful um, so now we, we said this is something very you know controversial sounding that God needs human beings quote unquote to repair the world to, to help God become what he's meant to become. And all of this falls under the, the category of theosophical and theurgic Kabbalah. So theosophical means of or relating to the inner life of God, whatever that means, and often used to talk about the sefirot, I believe. Theurgic goes a step beyond. And it says, not only can you know about the inner life of God, but you can influence the inner life of God to some degree. And that's really an incredible uh, statement. And like we always say, Take this with a grain of salt, you know, the, the, the paradoxical nature of everything mystical. Don't get too ego obsessed over this now, like, oh, look at me, I'm able to affect the change in God's realm. But at the same time, don't become too ego facing where you feel like you have no influence on spirituality at all. So use it as a, a, a gateway into a beautiful meditation. Um, so mystical enlightenment is supposed to help Every individual discover their unique purpose, their ikigai, like Erwin is saying. Now, divikut in mysticism, I would parallel that to mindfulness because divikut is a moment-to-moment clinging or cleaving to God and Bore Olam and this, this love that we have and we're in a relationship with this infinity while we're doing the mitzvot. And you know, we mentioned last week that when you get to a certain level, you're able to experience it as though when you removed your ego so much, then now who's doing the mitzvot? It's like God's doing the mitzvot. And who's learning the Torah? It's like God's learning the Torah. Because I'm so removed, I'm just the vessel for it to all flow through. And if you get to that highest level of divikut, that's what you could experience. And there's a certain beauty to this because now, you know, mindfulness in the Eastern traditions doesn't have so much of a, of a, you know, a human quality to it. It's just be present with what is. But Judaism adds a drama and a love to it. And it's, it's almost like now I can say every moment Hashem is saying, Michael, just spend one more moment with me. Spend one more moment and spend another. Every moment is God calling, you know, call Dodi Dovek, as they say, God's always calling to me to be Dovek. Say it again. She does yeah, exactly beautiful, and uh, I think it was Rabbi Soloveitchik made into a book. Beautiful, unbelievable. Fifty-six war, something. Something like that. I think so. Maybe six-day war. Yeah, I think it was six-day. Israel and yes. Now's your time. As you call it, exactly. It's it's so beautiful, right? And I feel like and maybe I'm missing something, but there are probably a lot of Eastern traditions that have a lot of this love stuff. But Judaism, we're so lucky that we have such a, t- a tradition of this intimacy with God. Um, and you're, it's not about your individual ego. It's really about the mission at, at large. But at the same time, it is about your individual ego. And in the sense that, so it is and it isn't. You play an essential role, but it's not about you. So again, we have this paradox. Um, so don't get, so we said last week, if you think you're a world, then you're small. But if you know that you're small, then you're a world. That's what I think one of maybe the Baal Shem Tov says that or something. Or maybe Rabbi Nachman, I forgot who. But that really gets it across. We always quote to be Tarfon in one pocket. Balances that out with. You can't have one or the other. Is the world in my head or is my head in the world? It's both at the same time. Um, so the inner life of God refers specifically actually to the seven lower sefirot. Um, especially Tif'eret and Shekhinah, which are seen as the male and female elements. And usually what's going on is some kind of divine copulation. And some people prefer that terminology. Some people don't. Up to you if you, if you like it or not. Um, we have a, little, a few more minutes, so we'll just continue on. If, if anybody has any questions or comments, please feel free. Otherwise, we'll talk a little bit about Shema Israel. All right. So what is Shema Israel? 
everyone we see this as such a you know like a mission statement almost or it's the Shema thing Shema Yisrael, exactly we, we say it before we die or you know to be akiva famously goes out with those words um but eventually it became you know even more than that it became like something that expresses everything that we stand for everything we believe in exactly and so my question is what is this is this, is this just simply acknowledging God's sovereignty, or is it more than that? Or is it actually fully necessary in order for God's sovereignty to be established as a product of human action? Right? So this is where you get a little bit of that chutzpah. If you really want to go that far and say that. So Masechet Berachot, they say a king is not really a king unless his people made him a king. Right? We know that, that song by Matis Yahu, right? A king without his crown. So there's an element to this of yeah, you know, is it, it what is God? If God's already infinitely everything all the time, always for eternity, unchanging, then there's nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to be. And then is he really God? You can understand what this means a little bit. There's no perception without a perceiver. There's no reflection of a mirror without the substance of the mirror itself. So do you matter? Well, yes, there wouldn't be all this stuff unless you were the one who knew that it was there. The tree falling in the forest. Everybody always talks about that. That's exactly the point. Um, so they, they, they say to make God king above and below and in the four directions of heaven. This is my God and I will beautify him. Right. So they say when I acknowledge God, God is glorious. But when I do not acknowledge God. God is not glorious. When I proclaim God's name, God is great. But when I do not, God is not great, if one may say such a thing. This is the Bishamon by Yochai, is in And he's saying all these, these things. And it makes sense that it's him, right? Because he's the father of all the mystical tradition that we know of in the Zohar. Uh, historically. He's, he's the king of Ebijibu. Exactly. He's the king of Ebijibu, the, the sultan of Swat, as they say. You know, so. But Mikey, so what, what does he mean when he said, when he says, uh, when I proclaim God, I got that. But he says, hold on. But, but when I do not acknowledge God, God is not glorious. Well, what do you mean? He, he, he could cherry pick when he likes God? So he's not saying he can cherry pick when he likes God. He's saying, if nobody's there to acknowledge God's sovereignty, then how can you call God a sovereign? You know, it's like, if, if God is infinity, as infinity, and there's nothing outside of it, then it's just all one. You know, like, there's no distinction for there to be somebody calling it amazing or, or anything. You know, it just... It sort of sounds like people be... But it's like, I believe in him sometimes, and I, I don't believe in him. So I don't think it's a matter of his believing in it. I think it's a matter of him saying, um, unless God is being acknowledged, he's not fully being seen as God. And there's something lacking in the divine realm, in his opinion. Thank you. Based on no problem. So and that and that comes from Zelivan Vehu. And then we know the Pasuk from Yeshaya. Atim Aidai says the Lord, I am God, and I am God, right? Yeshaya, so that's from Yeshaya, and then uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says it like this: When you are my witnesses, I am God; but when you are not my witnesses, it is as if I am not God. You hear that idea? So it's God is saying when nobody acknowledges that I'm God, it's almost as though I'm not God. And it's it's beautiful because you can say the same thing about yourself from a non-ego perspective. If you fully get into the groove of the universe. You can merge with everything by removing your ego fully. You will realize you are part of this thing that's called God. And you are God all along. That's what this tradition is trying to say. But if you're not acknowledging it, then you're just little old me. And I'm Michael Franco, as long as I'm not acknowledging that really I am part of God. If you want to remain just little old ego, keep going as little old ego. But if you want to become enlightened, I don't have a, a way of putting it into words for you, but find that path for yourself to get on that level where you are witnessing yourself as God. I think that's beautiful. Um, and right, this brings to mind Adam hiding from God in the garden. Maybe part of this story of Ma'aseh Bereshit acknowledges the breaking away of the ego from the whole, the breaking away of the drop from the ocean. 
Ayeka, where'd you go? And it's God's looking for us. He's calling to us. He's saying, come join back with me. What are you doing? Where'd you go so far away? And, but part of that is also God. That God is the journey and the destination and the, the, the symphony and the last hurrah. He's everything. Alpha and the Omega. So you talk about Shina Ma'alot. We read from Tehilim. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, were it not for me, you would not be enthroned in the heavens because you're Yoshevi Bashamayim, but only because If my Ainaim were not here to, to be raised up to you, I wouldn't even know that you're in the heavens, God. The Midrash says that God says to the ministering angels, if my people decline to proclaim me as king upon the earth, my kingdom ceases also in heaven. Right, so in order for God's kingdom to be in heaven, it needs to be here on earth. And finally, you know, these are all traditional Jewish sources. And they're validating a seemingly radical philosophy. So what do you make of this? What do you make of the fact that they're stating things so radically? I think they're trying to swing the pendulum back. Because we've seen God so much as Kadosh, 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 as the sovereign, that we've forgotten how to realize, no, there's an importance in your role to play in this as well. Symbiotic yes, beautiful. Exactly. There is a symbiosis here. That and, and it's like the yin and the yang symbol. We always talk about it. it's the interface of the two that's really providing for the fact that it's the whole in, uh, there at all. You know, the, you need the yin and the yang, and the meeting place of the two is where the magic happens. So the, I think this is beautiful because we uh, will end here and we'll, we'll open to questions. But this is beautiful because. We started off with all this Taoist stuff, and I think it's beautiful, and it really resonates, and it resonates for me. I'm sure it resonates with a lot of you guys. And then we talked about this stuff, and it also resonates too. And we mentioned some of the dangers of some of the Eastern stuff for me personally have been, if I try to remove my ego too much, then I become very self-effacing as an ego and neurotic and worried about being and doing anything, because then am I being egotistical? And then the thought of worrying is actually an egotistical thought because it's very ego obsessed. So you might run into that problem. So to balance me out, I have all this Jewish stuff, which is so beautiful, which tells me, no, enjoy the love of God and enjoy being a partner with God and creation. And there's a reason you're here right now. If God didn't want you here right now, you wouldn't be here right now. You know, and, and you have a mission to fulfill in this moment, just by being, just by existing. So we'll pause here and we'll continue next time. Um, but really thank everybody for coming. If you have any questions or comments, I'd like to open it up. Uh, otherwise we'll, we'll go say, I'd be anybody with any questions or, or comments. I just have one thought, Mike, on the wrap up. There, yes. What you say, there was a, there's a book that's famous book. I read, you might've read called flow. Oh um, yes. I did read flow. Yeah. Flow. Right. So flow. Flow also is that, cause you mentioned Throughout the, throughout the class tonight, so much about the flow of flow of flow. Yes. But it's flow, that, that, the, the guy who wrote it, uh, Mikhail Chinsentmihai. Right, you're right. How do you pronounce it? I think it's like Chinsentmihai or something like that. I tried pronouncing you it. You got it, you got it. So yeah. that really, that flow ties in everything you said tonight. I love it. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. I mean, he... He is so awesome that, that you know everybody quotes him. All these 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 gurus and all I these. I read his book three times. I love. Wow, <laughs> unbelievable! Yeah, it's it's he he talks about achieving. ID is the best. ID is the biggest scholar I know. I I don't mean that lightly. Um, he recommends me the best books, but it's it's about getting to a state of flow in your work, in your play, and when you're playing tennis and you lost yourself in the experience and it was such an amazing thing and you weren't thinking about how to hit the ball. You weren't thinking about you know, I got to hit a drop shot here. If you're thinking too much. Yeah, that's my friend. Exactly. Yeah, and he, I think he quotes flow probably. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Tennis? On tennis. No way. There was like some tennis match. One of these famous tennis players like in the game. And he just, he started thinking yep. about how he's going to swing the racket. And that was the worst thing. Wow. That, that did, that. Yeah. That ruined him because it just has to have naturally. Yes. If you think about it, you're, you're ruined. You know about the yips in baseball? One of these guys in the Cardinals, he was a pitcher, unbelievable pitcher. And it's like the NLCS, he comes out of the gate and he cannot locate the strike zone. He's almost hitting the batter, throwing right. it 10 feet over the catcher's mitt. Right. And then he could never get back his ability to pitch. He got and the that, yips. 
The yips, what is that? And then he'd be, they convert him into an outfielder. The yips is like when you get too much in your own head about yeah, every yeah. mechanical yeah, yeah. motion. I, I heard about this guy. And this it becomes like crazy. The 1800s. Exactly. Yeah. Early on. No, I think it was even more recently, but there's probably also uh, 100 years ago. But yeah. it's an incredible. I just, I just watched this whole thing uh, on baseball. What's his name? That, uh, Channel 13 guy does all these documentaries. Oh, uh, Peter Gannon's? No. No, no, no. He did Roosevelt. He did. I don't know. Okay. Oh, my God. He did, oh, he did oh, no. 10 part no. series on baseball. Wow. Really? I got to listen to that. Every watch 10 that. years is another episode. Ooh, I would it's love great. that. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to look that up. Oh, you would love I would love that. that. My dad and I will watch oh, that. That's sure. fantastic. But you, the early history of baseball is fascinating. That's sick. I love that stuff. All right. Anybody else? All right, Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen, amen. Guys, thank you so much. Anyway, Mikey, great. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, everybody. Take care, everyone. Bye.